Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each week, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello there. So we received a request to recommend books about history. So today we're sort of talking about (laughs) books about (laughs) history. Um, We're talking about um, not your typical history book. Yes, and I'm excited. So the first one that I'm going to talk about, um, usually whenever we do pick a theme, I'm always thinking about how I can go away from that theme for some reason. Like, (laughs) how can I make this interesting? Well, anyway, (laughs) the first book that I've decided to talk about is The Sous Chef by Sean Sherman and Beth Dooley. Although we usually suggest both a book and a beverage or recipe, I'd like to offer this book to serve both purposes. The title of the book is The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, and it's both a cookbook of indigenous recipes and an education on indigenous culture and history. And it just won a James Beard Award for the Best American Cookbook this year. Uh, Sean Sherman grew up on a Lakota reservation in South Dakota, and after working for years in fancy restaurants in Minneapolis, he opened up The Sous Chef, which is a company that offers catering and educational enterprise in the Twin Cities. The company is comprised of indigenous team members, making food primarily using ingredients that were available to indigenous populations before European colonization. Sherman and Dooley do a beautiful job of educating around different ingredients and the history or cultural considerations that also surround them, while also offering exciting and interesting recipes to try. Many of the ingredients are unfamiliar to me and probably also unfamiliar to most of our audience, but regardless of that lack of familiarity, there are many dishes in the book that I'm itching to make. One that I'm especially interested in making is the squash and apple soup with fresh cranberry sauce. Using corn or vegetable stock, it's a vegan, and I'm very intrigued by the combination of maple syrup and sumac as a garnish. It also looks like just the thing for the cool nights that we've had in Kentucky for the past week or so. Yeah, that soup sounds amazing. It's like Thanksgiving in a bowl, except, of course... And there's another whole recipe for cook, cooking a turkey that, in the book that is basically an entire Thanksgiving dinner wrapped into one. And it just sounds great. I think it's cooked on a bed of rice or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'd have to go back and look. But the recipes are really, really interesting. And um, if you're ever in Minneapolis, he's got a food truck called the Tatanka Truck. And they do um, all kinds of different things that are using only indigenous ingredients like corn and beans and Mm -hmm. squash and different kinds of game meats. So you've eaten at the food I actually haven't. (laughs) I have been in the same vicinity of it. (laughs) So we looked at the menu but like weren't hungry enough at the time to get it. Um, But they, rest assured, it is great food from what I understand. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. That actually makes me want to jump ahead a little bit because I think that would perfectly pair with a book that is next on my reading list. I haven't actually read this one, but um, one of the books that I'm going to talk about is Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. 
Um, that one I have read, <laughs> but um, reading that book made me realize how, you know, inadequate my education was on Native American issues. Um, so the book that is next on my reading list is a book of poems called Whereas by Lely Long Soldier. And she, I believe, is Lakota Sioux. Um, and according to the publisher's description, whereas, quote, whereas confronts the coercive language of the United States government in its responses, treaties, and apologies to Native American peoples and tribes, and reflects that language in its officiousness and duplicity back on its perpetrators, unquote. Um, so I did read one poem from the book before our recording session um, because it relates to an episode that is talked about in um, Prairie Fires, um, and that's the Sioux Uprising, um, or they call it the U.S.-Dakota War in Prairie Fires. Um, and in the poem, Long Soldier writes, Keep in mind, I am not a historian, so I will... So I will recount facts as best as I can, given limited resources and understanding, unquote. And, and that poem, that plain statement of facts, really amplifies the atrocities, but it's her imagery at the end of the poem that really conveys the true horror of history. And I think poetry is often a really good way of getting history in a different format. Definitely. Definitely. And cookbooks are, too, because there's so much you can mm -hmm. explore with the history of whatever your culinary heritage is. Absolutely. It makes me think of the cooking gene, but mm -hmm. that's for another podcast. <laughs> So as I mentioned, one of the books I wanted to talk about is Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and it's by Caroline Frazier. This book has won a bunch of awards, including the, the Pulitzer, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and it was one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of the Year, and it's been on my reading list for a while. It is Unlike the typical history and the way that it counters Wilder's nostalgic narrative of frontier life. Using Wilder's unpublished manuscripts, diaries, letters, and other records, Frazier reveals the many hardships the Ingalls family and other pioneers endured. Frazier writes a riveting account of the Ingalls family's migrations across the Great Plains, where they encountered drought, famine, locusts, and poverty in search of Charles Ingalls' dream of establishing a self-sustaining farm. Many of these episodes were deemed too frightening for children and left out of the original Little House series. Frazier points out that Wilder told her stories through the lens of memory. She wanted to see her parents, particularly her father, in a positive light. Frazier also describes Wilder's process of writing the series and disproves the rumors that Wilder's daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, ghostwrote the books. Though Lane collaborated with her mother to revise and edit the books, Wilder's drafts and correspondence confirm her authorship. 
Wilder and her daughter had a difficult relationship, and Lane struggled with depression and conflicting feelings about her parents. Lane spent money recklessly, and it was those spending habits, combined with a breakdown over the 1929 stock market crash, that spurred Wilder, at 62, to write her story. Since the age of nine, Wilder had worked to support her family, and this time was no different. Quote, if her daughter could not write, Fraser says, Wilder could. If her daughter could not earn, she would. Unquote. Prairie Fires is expansive, covering the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862 up to the Dust Bowl. Although I thought Fraser dwelt too long on Rose Wilder Lane's story, I appreciated the background information on the economic, environmental, and agricultural practices of the time, practices that are still affecting us today. When Wilder first began thinking about writing her family's story, she wrote to her aunt to ask for her mother's recipe for vanity cakes, as well as all the stories she could remember about their life in Wisconsin. Her elderly aunt happily supplied both. Quote, nothing much to it, she said of the vanity cakes. Make a dough with flour and water, then fry spoonfuls in hot lard. The little cakes would puff up, hollow in the middle, and melt on the tongue. According to a post on the Sights and Stories blog, those cakes later appeared in On the Banks of Plum Creek. And I think this is an example of a recipe that may not appeal to our contemporary palates. It doesn't have much sugar in it or much flavor, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unless you're, you know, someone who is living out on the frontier, not used to much sugar and flavor. Um, But if you're curious about the preparation, you can find it in The Little House Cookbook by Barbara M. Walker or at the link on our blog. I think, like you said, that's a good example of a recipe that tells us something about our history. Mm -hmm, For sure. So this past weekend at the library, we had our annual huge comic surge event that is many different things smashed together (laughs) from the world of comic books and sci-fi and sort of anything anybody wants to dress up as. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things going on there. Um, But in honor of that big event, I wanted to talk about Radioactive, which is a graphic novel about Marie and Pierre Curie, written and illustrated by Lauren Redness. This book tells the story of the famous couple, their discoveries, and how those discoveries have impacted various aspects of our lives, both now and throughout history. Redness chose to illustrate most of the book with cyanotype prints, which are created by exposing treated paper to sunlight, which in turn causes the chemical coating to form insoluble ferric ferrocyanide, which is also known as Prussian blue for any Bob Ross fans out there. The result is a kind of glowing pigment that Redness says captures what Curie called radium's, quote, spontaneous luminosity. Prussian blue capsules also happen to be approved by the FDA 
to treat internal contamination by radioactive cesium and thallium. Although I've seen criticisms of the book that redness interrupts the story too often with asides about x-rays or nuclear testing sites near Las Vegas or other seemingly random but also connected things about radioactivity or other events like um, Chernobyl. Uh, she just kind of throws them in there without any introduction or closing. <laughs> like they're mm -hmm. just two pages in the middle of the story. Um, although I've seen that that bothers some people. I didn't find myself too distracted by the one or two page interruptions. And I very much appreciated how the impact of the Curie's work was highlighted. Um, especially there's, I forget the name of whatever it was that Pierre invented when he was still very young um, that had a major impact on science and allowed very um, more advanced things to be done. <laughs> like he was like the first building block and then um, whatever that invention was allowed a lot of testing and, and invention to come after that. Um, the same thing is true of their discovery of radium and polonium. Um, so it, it's a little, it's not a little book, it's a big book. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of weird and the illustrations, you know, aren't for everybody probably, but um, I really enjoyed reading it and I really liked the illustration style. Um, and I learned a lot, which was very, it was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're interested at all in radioactivity, it's, it's called radioactive because it's not just about Pierre and Marie, but about radioactivity and how that, like their discoveries have had these huge ripple effects um, because they discovered it in the early 1900s before World War I and then we know what happened in World War II and has happened since then with, with nuclear weapons and things like that. So they had a huge impact on our world and it was really cool to learn more about their lives. Very cool. Yeah. And then for what to eat with it, um, Marie was from Poland. That's why they, she named that the first element she discovered, which was polonium, she named it after Poland. Um, That's a fun fact. I yeah, did not know. <laughs> fun fact. Many fun facts I've got for you about Pierre and Marie. Um, but I would suggest pairing this with a Eastern European dish. Uh, my people are from Lithuania and we call it vinaigretas. Apparently in Ukraine they call it vinaigreta, no S. <laughs> um, but it's, it is basically, a, it sounds really weird. I, pr I promise you it's great. Um, it's a beet and assorted vegetables and pickle salad. Um, but the recipe that I found is from Mamushka, which is a book of recipes from Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Um, one of the most disastrous, disastrous nuclear accidents that has ever happened happened at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine in 1986. So I grabbed this book of Ukrainian recipes off our shelf and found one that was familiar to me uh, and one of my favorites. This salad is found all over Eastern Europe with different regional variations and it's usually served around Christmas or New Year's. We always have it on Christmas Eve because that dinner is a dinner without meat and also with 12 dishes. It's a very 
it's one of the very fun things that we do that's still pretty Lithuanian. Um, and it's, it's something that I look forward to all year. The author of the book, Mamushka, roasts the beets and potatoes before combining them with peas, diced red onion, and pickles. My family does not roast anything because we are, <laughs> that's just not the way we do it. Um, but we also add white beans, carrots, and sour cream to that mixture. So ours is much like creamier and um, harder to identify the different components. So it scares a lot of people off because it's just like <laughs> pink and vegetable and pickle and it's weird, but I love it. And I know a lot of people in my family love it too, but I would really like to try the version in, from Mamushka because it sounds similar, but also great in another way. So what does she use to dress it instead of sour cream? I don't think she really does. I think it's like the, the pickle provides, I'll have to look back at the recipe, but I think maybe just a little bit of the pickle juice. Like she doesn't mm -hmm. use any sort of substitute. Hmm. It's more just like a assorted vegetable combination. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, the picture was beautiful though. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard not to make beets look beautiful, mm -hmm. I think. <laughs> Especially when they're all roasted and mm -hmm. delicious. I yeah. love beets. Me too. It was definitely an acquired taste for me, but once I, once I turned to that side, I don't think I could go back to not eating them. Yeah, I'm excited now that it's fall mm -hmm. beet season again. <laughs> last book um, I think is on the lighter side of history. It's called 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. In 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret, Craig Brown reinvents the biography form. Instead of telling Princess Margaret's story in a strictly linear fashion, one that usually begins with a tiresome family genealogy, such as in Prairie Fires. <laughs> um, he combines essays, lists, quotes from official documents, letters, and other biographies, as well as parodies and even alternate histories. At every turn, he questions the very nature of biography, showing how the same event can be viewed through different lenses. He also acknowledges the conjecture and artifice typical of the form. Quote, biography is at the, mercy, at the mercy of information, he writes, and information about the royal family is seldom there when you want it. This is what makes biography the most sheepish and constrained of the arts and the least like life, and royal biography doubly so, unquote. What emerges is a collage constructed of all these glimpses of the princess. If, like me, you find Princess Margaret to be one of the most compelling characters on the Netflix series The Crown, then you will be pleased to know that in Brown's book, she is just as witty, rude, haughty, scandalous, and needy as in the series. My favorite parts of the book were the alternate marriages that Brown imagines for her one to group captain Peter Townsend, and one to Pablo Picasso, who was apparently obsessed with the much younger princess. The book is a veritable who's who, 
Gore Vidal, The Beatles, Jessica Mitford, Governor Jerry Brown, and Dusty Springfield all make appearances. She feuded with Elizabeth Taylor and left Marlon Brando tongue-tied. Often, the footnotes are just as funny and interesting as the main text. The book's jacket copy describes Princess Margaret as a, quote, Cinderella in reverse, unquote, and you can definitely see that in the ending. After describing her funeral and memorial service, Brown describes the sale of 896 of the princess's personal items auctioned at Christie's. Her two children, who'd been willed 7.6 million pounds, 3 million of which went to estate taxes, even sold her famous Baltimore tiara, which fetched 926,400 pounds. The chairman of Christie's claimed that, quote, Her Royal Highness, the Princess Margaret's widespread appeal was reflected in the exceptional prices, unquote. And thus the princess was reduced to yet another commodity. So as you would probably expect, if you know anything about Princess Margaret, there was a lot of drinking in the book. <laughs> the princess's day usually began at 11 a.m., and some sort of vodka pick-me-up was usually on the agenda shortly after. Um, and gin and tonics figure prominently in the book. I was a little surprised, though, at how bad a lot of the food sounded. If the princess dined at home in Mystique, the meal always began with, quote, shrimp cocktail and a pink sauce, unquote. Brown writes that, Quote, the princess was under the impression that the pink sauce was a closely guarded native secret handed down from generation to generation, which it was in a sense. They made it from Hellman's with a dash of Heinz tomato ketchup. How did I know you were going to say that? That just shows how far removed she was from cooking that she Mm -hmm. thought ketchup and mayonnaise was a closely guarded secret. So if the princess were still around, I'd want her to know that she could kick her pink sauce up a notch with homemade remoulade that also relies on some condiments and and pantry staples. My favorite recipe uses mayonnaise, creole mustard, sriracha, capers, garlic, lemon juice, Worcestershire sauce, and of course lots of spices. There are a lot of ingredients, but unlike some remoulade, it doesn't require much chopping or dirtying up a food processor, which is great for those of us without kitchen staff. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds a lot better than mayonnaise and ketchup on its own. (laughs) (laughs) It's great for, um, you know, shrimp cocktail as she would eat her... um, pink sauce with um, or other seafood but I think it also goes really well with anything fried like fried green tomatoes or zucchini fritters it sounds delicious yeah I love remoulade I love anything with that tang mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well my last book is also on the lighter end of things. We go from Native American oppression and radioactivity to also the British side of things. So my next book is one that I've talked about at our in-person Books and Bites meetings before. 
but it didn't make it into the podcast for some reason. Not sure why, because it's fantastic. Uh, the book is My Lady Jane by Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. And it's one of, although it was not published this year, I first listened to it this year, and it is definitely one of the best things I've, I've listened to. Um, I've also heard that it's great in print, um, but the narrator just does such a great job because it's very, you know, it's meant to be very funny and she's very over the top in the best way possible. And it's, it's just, she does a great job. So I, if, if you're into audiobooks, highly recommend the audio. Uh, anyway, it tells the story of the Nine Days Queen, Lady Jane Grey who was caught up in the machinations of British royalty and various usurpers after the death of King Edward VI. And all of that is true. Lady Jane Grey did exist. The person that she marries is the same person that she marries in this book. Uh, but the telling of this tale has a little bit of a twist. <laughs> in this England, some people can turn into animals. And not just any animal, but the same one each time. So they like turn into their animal. Uh, these people are termed Ethians, and their abilities set up a logical conflict with those who can't turn into animals, who are known as Verities. This conflict just so happens to reflect the real-life conflict between Catholics and Protestants, but with more fur and hooves. <laughs> um, because, of course, then the Ethians have to be kept out of power by the Verities, who have more power and that's that's the major struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, the, like I said, the audiobook was exactly what I needed when I listened to it, and I laughed out loud, like actually laughed out loud in real life several times. Can't recommend it more. Uh, Lady Jane, My Lady Jane is technically for young adults. It is marketed as a young adult book, and as far as they get is kissing. So I think it it's her it. Definitely is in the young adult world. Um, <laughs> so I would suggest pairing it with a glass of fresh apple cider, alcoholic or non-alcoholic as you prefer. Uh, one of the main characters spends the daylight hours as a horse. <laughs> and that's another one of the conflicts. <laughs> he doesn't have any control over it. Some Athians do. But at sunup and sundown, is his transformations happen without his power involved. Um, but apples are one of his favorite treats. Mm. And so I thought apple cider, because that's definitely something that I like to be drinking around this time of year. Uh, so that combined with the weather these past few days makes a glass of cider an ideal treat while reading about convoluted, ridiculous British history. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We record in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. You can find out more about the recording studio on our website at jesspublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.